This is the Rockonomics Podcast number five. I'm your host, Dill, alongside producer Nick Fry, and we're here to explore the price tags and the paychecks of the business that is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Our guest today is Larry Farber. Larry is the CEO of Music with Friends, which is sort of a country club for music lovers, as he describes it, and he's also senior managing partner for ECE. And if you're going to start a music podcast, you want to have 100 Larry Farbers lined up. He's the perfect guest. He's been in the business of booking talent for over 40 years, and he's got the stories and the passion to go with it. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Ready to go. Um, as am I. That's right. Um, so I, I figured we'd start a little bit with current events. Um, Hurricane Harvey just happened. Um, I know you hold events at Zilka Hall with Music with Friends. Have you checked in on it? I actually I, I looked at an a interactive map and I saw it, I did. It, it looked okay. It the, did. the streets look like rivers around it, but it looked like we're going to have everybody that's a member of Music Friends take a boat to uh, <laughs> to the hall. No, interestingly, uh, two days after RV, I called the the venue and they're fine. They're up and ready to go. But for me, I looked at that as an opportunity to try to do something for the city. So I really am proud to say I talked to the mayor's office yesterday. We are taking a hundred of our seats and giving them to first responders. Oh, great! And we're going to recognize them, and uh, we're also going to have Credence Clearwater, who's playing, begin with "Down on the Bayou." So <laughs> we're going to sort of recognize them, begin the night with uh, some appropriate music, and and really pay tribute to those people that have uh, been fighting the battle. Sure. And we hope that for an hour and a half, that it'll help people forget. Uh, what they've endured over the last few weeks and, and sit back and listen to some great music. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. That's a great, uh, you know, great service to the community. Um, and that brings up the question, you know, you've been in this business a long time, um, booking shows and um, creating, you know, unique experiences. Has this happened before? As, as like a natural, you know, hurricane criteria or whatever it may be, has that come in and really just you know, pushed you guys back a month or really caused disarray in your business? Yeah, knock on wood, um, with regard to music with friends, we haven't had to postpone any shows in 11 years. However, with regard to East Coast Entertainment, it presents a challenge, and it will again this time, because you think about it, deal on the coast, from literally from Savannah, Jacksonville on up. Yeah. Every weekend, we probably have 50 to 100 weddings. So today, we were fielding calls about the what-ifs, uh, and it's a pretty pretty scary situation for these these brides and their families that have planned trips sure. to come to these cities, and they really don't know whether or not they're going to be able to hold their weddings next weekend, what the residual effect will be. So we've had that happen before, and you know you have to just do everything you can to to be flexible and accommodate everybody. Some people move the location, you know, westward or find a, a, a come to different cities nearby. Right. Some people just try to postpone them till uh, they can find a mutual date. But it presents a challenge. Yeah, I guess I guess you always have to remind people it's uh, 
You're talking hurricane season. You know? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Seems like it's the same thing, uh, you know, year after year. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, uh, let's let's kind of go back to, uh, you know, uh, the, the beginning of you. Um, where are you from originally? I'm, I was born and bred Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah. There's few and uh, I've had a couple so far as guests. They do seem few and far between since I've been around here. It's like no one's from the area. Yeah, I am one of the few that uh, stayed nearby. And what was your, you know, first, uh, how did the love of music uh, first grab you? Yeah, you know, it, it's a great story for me because I lived in uh, a section of Charlotte and Cotswold section. And uh, my na- we my neighbor had a grand piano in their house. One day I was over there and I started banging around on the keys, came home, talked to my parents. The next thing I know, they have a piano for me. And also, um, fortunately for me, my mother's side of the family had some real musical talent. My uncle Jack uh, was a band leader in South America. His daughter, Davida, played violin with Doc Severinsen, with oh, Elvis, wow. with Wayne Newton. So, and then my uncle Lou, who I was named after, was a professional dancer, sort of like a Fred Astaire in California. So, music was on part of my family, was in the genes, the DNA. So, um, I quickly took to it. And at 12, I started taking piano lessons. And at 14, I had my first band. So, uh, it was great, played in bands all the way through college, Chapel Hill. And it's gotten to my blood. And, and here I am a few years later. And uh, it's still what I love, and I'm so so really fortunate to have lived a life doing something that I that I that I love. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I also read where you were you part of the Rivieras at one time. I was, yeah. That was a local group in the in the southeast, and we uh, played quote unquote the beach music in Motown, and okay. we were like a seven piece group, a couple of horn players, female vocalist, and we play high school proms. I never went to my prom because. I was on stage you were playing. Booked. That's right, and uh, and then we played college fraternities, sororities, and uh, and local clubs. So it was it was really great. And what I found, I had more fun actually being on the other side of watching people, and being up there with my buddies playing all the current music of that time. The you know the Temps, the Four Tops, James Brown, Chicago Doobies, and uh, it was it was the best. Now, were they I, – I did a little research on Rivieras. There, there was two Rivieras. There was two bands. Were you guys the band that was signed to co-ed? No, we were – no. We were a local group, and it was basically all Carolina guys. Okay. Our band did a song called Behold, and uh, it was – they still play it on – actually, Sirius Radio did a uh, – <laughs> Channel 13 did for a while, did sort of the, the beach music, quote-unquote, uh, for a couple months. And they play – I. I was driving actually out west to California, and bang, there, there it was. First time I'd heard it in forty years. Oh so, my gosh, how funny! Yeah, it was great. Bob Meyer and the Rivieras. Now, did you have aspirations of uh, making a career as a musician at first? No, and and a great question for me. Um, I, I was fortunate to take lessons from really a person that inspired me. His name was Ziggy Hurwitz. He was without a doubt the greatest teacher in our in Charlotte, and. He not only taught me about music, but about theory of music, how, understanding theory. And he, and one of the things that he sort of taught me, he himself taught piano and played in bands. And he said, Larry, I, 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 if you get into this business, don't get in it as a full-time musician. Become, look at the business side of it. So 
you know, I knew from the start I didn't I didn't want to be a full time musician, even though still I'm playing a couple times a month in a band. So I I, I went to Chapel Hill in 1969, got out, uh, was admitted to law school, and uh, did not have a real passion for that, and took a little time off. I'd been playing in bands through college, and uh, opened a club. So now I was playing in bands, opened a club. <laughs> And I went, I'm not going back to law school. And thus, this career began. And I found a, a job as an agent okay. and started booking other groups. So it began there, and it hadn't stopped. Now, was that at Hit Attractions? That exactly. That's right. Good research. I started there May 14th, 1973. And I literally graduated from Chapel Hill two days later. So I took <laughs> Sunday off. I went to work Monday. And I really haven't missed a day since. That's amazing. What were what were some of the big acts at the time? You know, kind of. I, I assume you were regional at that time. Yeah, uh, when I first started, uh, you know, the first few years, I was the guy that would go to different colleges and book the bands that played for fraternity parties and um, and, and other you know, some clubs and some weddings. But back then, the the groups were regional groups, groups like the Catalinas and the Rivieras mm-hmm. and the Spontanes and. Uh, were some of the you know some of the major groups, the Dynamic Upsetters, uh, Liquid Pleasure, which is still around. But then uh, my job, of course, morphed into booking some national groups, and those groups were people like the Tams, that of course are around the Drifters, Chairman of the Board, the Impressions, some of those kind of uh, more regional national groups, and then the Temps and the Four Tops and the Smokey Robinsons, and you know from there really began sort of having the ability to book both regional groups and national. So, and it was exciting because, you know, you grew up and those were the bands that, you know, I played their music and now I was able to book them. And so it began in the seventies and, you know, I, I, I I really say this because it's true. I have lived a dream and sometimes I slap myself today. uh, Fast forward 47 years. I just booked uh, a big, big date on Zach Brown and actually I thought about it. That was it to, to date. It's the most expensive band that I've booked in my history. <laughs> was today with Zach Brown. That's so funny. So uh, it's just uh, it's come full cycle. <laughs> when you say most expensive band, in, in what in what you know form? You know, just million plus a night kind of band. Right. You know, back when I started, I, I looked at some records and uh, old records that I kept, and you know, it's hard to believe, but back in the seventies. We would bring, I, I mean this, the James Browns, the Temps, the Four Tops, right. and they would get maybe a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a night. Now you can barely get a DJ for that now, right? But that's what they commanded. And so when I look back, I go, "That's just incredible." Because bands, regional bands, might have made two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred dollars, and then the national acts were making, you know, like I said, from fifteen hundred up. But it's uh, it's come a long way. Interesting. It makes me want to ask. Back in the day, um, were you ever seeing people being ripped off? I mean, I feel like there's so many stories of these. You know, when you mentioned James Brown, you know, acts like that, that they were always being screwed over by, you know, their handlers or their management. I think I have two of the best stories about that. So let me <laughs> let me tell you. Um, you know, I think that the the genesis of of that came from the James Browns of the world and, and Aretha. And those are my two stories and emanating from when they would play these clubs. And at the end of the night, sometimes 
the club owner would say, oh, we didn't do what we're supposed to and shorted them. Or when they would sit there literally and count out the money, they were always trying to take advantage of some of these artists. So you fast forward to probably the late, maybe 1998 to 2000, and I had booked an event with James Brown in Roanoke, Virginia. And it was on a Sunday. So, and it was for First Union. So anyway, we, we, we had James Brown playing in this little venue. So I knocked on his door about an hour before he was supposed to play. And we had it paid him a deposit, as is the procedure in our business. And then we owed him the balance. So I knocked on the door with a certified check from First Union. And he came to the door with his rollers in his hair. And, and for me, that was, you know, still pretty cool and exciting. And I said, Mr. Brown, here's the, the remainder of your check. And he goes, no, sir, cash. And I went, Mr. Brown, it's a Sunday. He said, figure it out. So I go back to my buyer and I go, we got a problem. We got to come up with X amount of cash in an hour. The guys huddled. They went to every money machine in Roanoke with paper bags and filled it up with 20s. And about five minutes before uh, he was supposed to go on, I knock on the door and I went, Mr. Brown, here's your money. You don't have time to count it, but you're going to have to trust me. If you want this bag, and I showed him full of 20s, Please trust me. Go on. And he did. And it was, and, and, you know, when you think about it, part of that was him being burned. Now, yeah. again, you fast forward to music with friends that I was fortunate to start uh, in 2007 in Charlotte. I had Aretha and I had her the night after Whitney Houston passed away. So now I'm in going back to her dressing room right before she goes on. And I was paying her for her deposit uh, uh, to play that night was a considerable amount of money. Right. But I had been told in advance that she had to have cash. So, of course, I went to about four banks to get what she needed. <laughs> and before we went on, I literally sat and counted the hundreds until it reached the amount that we paid her. And I was told by a couple of friends, don't be insulted if she asks you to count it again. So I sort of preempted. Once I got to that number, I said, "Miss Franklin, it'd be my pleasure to count it again for you. She said, no, no, I trust you. That's so good. I felt like I had one or over. <laughs> and she took the big pocketbook that had the cash. She took it on stage. She put it back on the piano, put it on the piano and just played for an hour and a half. I, she and I were the only ones that knew that that pocketbook contained enough money for us to take a great vacation. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Now, was there any question whether she would go on or not after such a, you know, I know uh, she was close with Whitney at the time, wasn't she? A great question. So I'm there the night before they pull in, they, they're staying at the Ritz and I get the news about Whitney. I was absolutely sure. You know, we talked about a hurricane earlier, but I thought she's not going on. That's, she's a godmother. And so the first thing I did very calmly, I called her tour manager was here. I said, I'm so sorry about the news. I know that, that Miss Franklin's taking it hard. I certainly understand that we may have to delay it. He goes, let me talk to her. Hour later, he calls. He goes, not only does she want to go on, because this was her sort of cathartic way to grieve. Right. She wants to uh, to do uh, sort of just a spontaneous medley uh, in her honor. So I was thrilled that that was going to happen. And simultaneously, I started getting calls from ABC, NBC, because they knew the situation with her. Right. And they sent film crews down to our, our, our venue, McGlowan Theater. And she, in the middle of the show, 
she said, ladies and gentlemen, and talked about her love for Whitney. And she got on the piano in this beautiful old converted Baptist church and for 30 minutes wailed. And just you felt like, well, you were in church, yeah. but you felt uh, it was surreal. And and so it's hard to explain to people those kind of things that you'll remember for a lifetime. Sure. But that's one of those memories that you can't recreate. And I knew I was experiencing a moment that was unlike anything I had ever ever experienced in my life. Yeah, that's amazing. It's funny, uh, not to make light of it, but that's kind of the time you want a middleman when you have to, like, is she, is she okay? Is right. she going to go on? You know, yeah. the last thing you want to do is have to approach, approach the artist themselves. Oh, I was ready for <laughs> everything. Yeah, gosh. Well, like you said, you guys have yet to, uh, knock on wood, you have yet to postpone uh, right. one of your dates for music with friends. Um, so uh, before, I guess I wanted to segue into you eventually merged to, uh, to, into ECE. Did you merge to ECE or did you create ECE? Yeah, so e- when I started, as I was telling you, with Hit Attractions in 1973, um, I had the pleasure of doing some business with two guys that were my friends in Richmond, and they had ECE at that t- point, East Coast Entertainment. Mm-hmm. And I decided that I really wanted this booking experience to be bigger and better. And so I left in 1986 from Hit Attractions, formed uh, a, a relationship with these two guys in Richmond, and then I opened the second office in Charlotte. Uh, at that point, I recruited a couple of other folks that are still with us, and we had two offices. And, and knock on wood, we've gone from two offices to 14, and uh, the two guys that I started with one unfortunately passed away many years ago and the other retired about five years ago so uh i am the senior guy there now but <laughs> proudly we have nine or ten partners and um we represent over 100 exclusive bands in 14 offices from new york to florida so it's become a, a really great and profitable business and again I've, I've been lucky enough to to book uh every kind of act you can imagine for any kind of situation Right. Now, I, I'm not sure where I heard this. Did you guys do anything with like a presidential inauguration at, at some point? Or Yeah, or? every every four years we've uh, – we have an office in D.C. now, um, and we've had connections with the DNC and RNC. And so we booked a couple of our – we call them our super show bands, Party in the Moon, Simply Irresistible. These are Atlanta-based bands that are just knock your socks off. But we've done those bands up there and then some of our sort of groups that do – um, more of a big band sound, right. but we have connections. So every four years we get um, one or two or three of our bands. At, you know, there are many, many inaugural parties, but, but our bands, uh, we've had bands play for every inauguration since I've been uh, in the business. That's interesting. Yeah. What kind of are some more uh, other memorable, unique events that you can think of that you've been a part of or booked? Yeah, you know, again, so many. I, I, I'll just uh, off my... Off the cuff, I, I will tell you about a really incredible one. Let's just say it's 20 years ago because I can't remember the exact date. I got a call from uh, a client in D.C. She was representing an Arab sheikh uh, from Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And he was opening a Sheridan. And he wanted cool in the gang. He didn't care what it cost, but he wanted cool in the gang. So, you know, we did our due diligence and knew the guy was for real. And um, so we worked out, uh, worked out booking Cool and the Gang, and my partner Ed Duncan. Um, I was supposed to go. I got sick like a couple of weeks before, so he took my place. I wish I'd 
I'd personally gone. <laughs> but he went over, and it was the first night uh, of the opening of this hotel, and they had some power issues. Make a long story short, Cool and the Gang got on stage about 1 o'clock in the morning and played till you know, 3, 3.30. And here's something I'll remember again for life. The the Arab Sheikh wanted them to do two or three extra songs, so he did. They played. He went up and tipped each one of the members ten thousand dollars. Oh my God! So you know that's something you never forget. And, <laughs> neither uh, do they. Neither do they. <laughs> and by the way, they didn't tip the agent. But they, they they tipped uh, they tipped the band. So uh, so that's been a, you know one of the many many cool experiences that we've. We've been able to book. That's very funny. And twenty years ago, Cool and Gang was probably, you know, top yeah, they, of their game. They were the deal. Yeah, yeah they were the. They were the, the deal. That's cool. Um, tell me more about um, you. You did mention um, uh, music with friends that started in two thousand seven. It did. And what was the impetus of of creating that? You know, uh, it was one of those. I, I'm I'm a dreamer. I am, and some of my ideas are not so good, and some hopefully are good. This was one that I, you know. I knew that we had this great theater in Charlotte, McGloan, and it was, as I described earlier, it was this old church, about 600 seats that had been converted. And I thought, you know, all my life from, from Chapel Hill days, you know, the whole idea was you, there were all kinds of ways to hear music, you know, from a Woodstock with thousands of people in a field right. to a Coliseum that might have 20,000. And I went, what if you could create an intimate experience, one that was almost like hearing these legendary artists in your own house? And obviously couldn't afford to bring some of these people in my own house. But I said, so what size would, would allow you to economically make it work, but would create that real, keep that intimacy, that up close, that personal, so they could look you in the eyes, that it sounded great, and that they could tell their story and sing their songs and talk about them in a way that really... Um, was a, a unique experience. So I, I I knew we had this great theater. And I said, well, then, you know, this is the place to do it. Now, how can I do it? And I thought, I'm going to have a country club for music lovers. People will join. We'll all participate in voting on who we might want. I'll give them a menu of artists that we could afford based mm-hmm. on our dues. And I said, you know, I think this will work that, you know, we'll put it'll be music and it'll be with my friends and it'll be 600 of my best friends. And, and we'll turn the night not only into a night of music, but a night of fun where we have a great cocktail party. People get to mingle, schmooze, and then we have a, a post party. So it just sort of was an idea. It grew, and it there was traction, and people liked it. And I didn't know what I was doing at first. It was sort of trying to figure it out as, right. as I went. But the first night in April of 2007, Michael McDonald walked on the stage. And he belted out one of those great numbers, and I looked out there and I said, "Boy, this this uh, dream became reality." And that same year, we had Gladys and Tony Bennett, and we were off and running. And just a quick little sidebar is that now you look back uh, eleven years, and I'm really proud because you know just last week we lost Walter Becker from Steely Dan. Right. I've had Steely Dan play twice, and I sat with Walter Becker and probably had a two hour conversation with him about all the beautiful chords that you get from a Steely Dan song and how they came up with them. And, you know, an experience that you couldn't pay millions of dollars to be able to sit with a guy like that. Glenn Fry. Yeah. I had dinner with him 
uh, the night before he played for me in Charlotte and our Charleston club sat with him and Bill Simsek, who was the producer uh, of Hotel California, who lives in our area. And it was just the three of us. And Glenn Fry said to me, Larry, thank you for having this club because I've played the biggest venues in the world, but this was an opportunity to play such an intimate kind of setting. And so, and then he passed and I realized how lucky I was. And then of course we lost Al Giroux, who I had um, in my second year. So as we, and you know, I've had Tony Bennett at all the clubs and he's 91 now. And I go, I was able to personally experience it. And so were the members. And this is something that um, I hope he lives to be 120, but I knew we had him. And so I really feel um, so fortunate that I've experienced it, our members. And so we'll have this special place in our minds for, uh, for that music of these people that are no, will no longer be with us one day. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, it's funny that you mentioned, you know, talking with these people, getting to actually, you know, really engage them for, you know, a good amount of time. Um, some people are, you know, shy to meet their heroes. You seem to embrace it. I mean, are there other, you know, what other things stick out in your head in terms of, you know, meeting people you've always admired? Yeah. Well, you know, um, I am no different than you or probably anybody else. I love the music and I'd heard, for example, that Dinah Ross would be tough and, We've had her three times, and she is just lovely. If you treat her well, she treats you well. And, and you know, so I was a little apprehensive, but she couldn't have been warmer, kinder. Um, Bonnie Raitt, you know, just meeting her and, 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 and getting to hang out with her in Charleston a little bit. Uh, you know, I found that 95% of the, of the biggest stars are the nicest people. Two Two other quick great stories. When Earth, Wind, and Fire played, um, and I'll tell you about Cheryl Crow in a minute, but when Earth, Wind, and Fire played, uh, Philip Bailey, the the voice of yep. Earth, Wind, and Fire, got off the bus, and he didn't know who I was. He came in. He said, where is so-and-so venue? And I said, right here. I said, uh, he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Larry Farber. I'm the founder. And we have become best friends. It began there. We found out we were born 10 days apart. We go play golf. We talk to each other because he he was he's a Taurus like me and and we both have been in music and you know you think this guy might not be approachable he's the best and Darius Rucker Darius has become a friend through music with friends he called me when I had Bonnie Raitt and asked if he could come on stage on his own nickel to sing Angels from Montgomery with her and you know again I sit here and tell you that these are things I could have never dream would happen or I'd be a part of when Jackson Brown played for us, he came to town and I said, Jackson, you may or may not know this, but Maurice Williams lives in our area. You did his song stay. He said, of course. He said, do you know how to get a hold of him? I said, of course I do. <laughs> 20 minutes later, I had Maurice in the theater and he came out and surprised our audience when with Jackson. And again, you're creating those kind of experiences right. that you really can't replicate. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, you mentioned Cheryl Crow. Cheryl came in, and she got off her bus, no makeup. She's a beautiful woman. And I didn't recognize her, and I went, can I help you? And she <laughs> said, well, yes, I'm here for the show. And put my hand out, said Larry Farber. And she said, Cheryl Crow. I felt, you know, pretty stupid, <laughs> but she was great. And, and you know, again, she goes to She said, do you know so-and-so? And this was happened to be a woman that lived on my street, and it was her friend from Missouri. They were cheerleaders in high school. Oh my gosh. So I got them together and she came to the show and 
you know, it's just just small world, cool things like that that uh, have happened. That's great. That's amazing. Um, I guess uh, moving on from that, one of the things I want to ask you is it seems, you know, you're saying you've been in the business 45 years. I started uh, as an agent in 1973. Of course, I played when I started as a kid, but actually professionally since 73. Right. So all the, gosh, all the different eras, you know, there's punk rock, there's stadium rock, there's disco, you know, MTV in the 80s, grunge in the 90s, rap hip-hop, the digital age. Has any one of these errors, errors, sorry, errors, eras, right. um, have, have any of them proven a challenge for, for you? I mean, I feel like what you do with booking, you're, you're almost impervious to, like one of the big things that's dragging down the industry is digital, but people still play a lot. I mean, it's, it has very little effect on you, it seems. Is that true? It is. You know, I, two things that have occurred to me and I've witnessed – one is, and again, knock on wood, um, we've been somewhat inflation-proof because, you know, through recessions, people still want to hear music um, for for their events, and so we've been lucky. And then I've also found that uh, uh, in our company, most of the time, uh, we book bands that are playing other people's music, and and so even though there are certain bands that play more current, the majority of of our bands are still playing those commercial songs, those right. go-to journey and all those different songs that have been sort of survived the test of time. Um, you know, we do book now. One of the things that's happened over the last 10, 15 years is there are a lot more tribute bands right. and there's a tribute band for everybody. You know, the Led Zeppelin tribute, Rolling Stones, Beatles, on and on and on. There's a tribute band for almost everything. And so, um, and so there's tribute bands for different eras of music was where I was going. One of the, there's a band um, called the Yacht Rock Review out of Atlanta. They, you know, called me years ago. We booked them a few times. I didn't think they'd make it. And they're one of the premier bands in the country now doing 70s. And it's all about the 70s. And right. they are incredible. There's a group out of Atlanta called the breakfast club. All they do are eighties. So, you know, it's, 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 it's cool to watch those bands. Um, it's funny. I want to ask you, do tribute bands have to pay a royalty? They don't, you know, I, 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 I they, they, they really play by the same rules that anybody else does when they're playing other people's music right. in, in public, you know, venues. Normally the, the operator of that venue has to play, pay some licensing fee to ASCAP BMI uh, for their that music to be played, but when the bands go play private events or public, they don't play. They don't have to pay any kind of royalty uh, for that. Now they have to be careful about what they call themselves. Right. You know, um, Hotel California is a local Eagles tribute band, and you know there's all kind of plays on on the bands. Uh, um, I mean, there's a band out there called the Zach Brown Tribute Band. Yeah, and uh, but uh, they usually don't run into any any real problem the sure. problems came when there were like 1800 drifters groups out at the same time or, <laughs> or 42 temptations but, right when it's you know, yeah right. who really has the rights the platters those are examples of groups that you know there were the buck ram platters the performing platters the da 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 so have you ever run into that where you know a, a group splinters and it's you know it's different members of the original group fighting for the right to be that absolutely. name absolutely there was and as I said, the, the ones I gave you, really the platters were one of them. 
Buck Ram was from Las Vegas, and he had the rights to the name. But then Sonny Turner left, and he had a platters group. And, and, and really, we were part of uh, booking some of these things where there were some court fights about who had the rights. And they would go in and try to really prevent some of these groups from playing public events if they were using the name erroneously. And, you know, even today, uh, an example would be Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. So now you have, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash together right. and Neil Young. They have a prearranged agreement about who can perform what songs when they're out. Wow. So it's even uh, true today. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, who would you like to see? What, what what show would you like to put together that you haven't put together? Yeah, you know, I can answer that because I think about it a lot. <laughs> and um, for me, one of the uh, the show that sort of my bucket list show for a music with friends event. So now, you know, I talked about it being intimate. So I think about who would just be perfect in an intimate venue. And the person I like you think about is Sting because his music just crazy good. He's had an unbelievable career from rock to jazz. And I think if I could get Sting's three or four piece group in a 600 seat venue, then, then I'm done. I'm dying. I go to yeah. heaven. I go, all right, I'm happy now. So if you ask me for one, I have to answer it that way. That's, I'm I'm surprised. I, I respect it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Sting fan, Police fan, but that'd be that would be a great show. Yeah, yeah. But I think he's, uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know the budgets for some of your. Uh, That's things, the problem. He's a. I think he's a. Uh, a crafty businessman. People would have to pay about fifteen hundred dollars a seat. <laughs> I would do that, and yeah. I think there's a, probably two hundred members that would. I don't know if that there's six hundred. Yeah, they sure. may not love music like me. <laughs> Um, I, I read where your favorite movie is Field of Dreams. Yeah. You know, when people have asked me, that was just, uh, my three boys all played baseball. So, uh, you know, I, I think just thinking about, and I love baseball. I'm a guy that tries to go to as many baseball stadiums as possible. And so, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to stick with that movie. Well, it's funny when I, when I saw that, I figured it was if you you know it, the line is the signature line is if you build it, they will come. I feel like that's must be your philosophy with what you do for a living. You know, I did that with music with friends when I went to try to sell the concept in other cities, Houston, Nashville, Charleston. I sort of emulated that whole thing. Was if I build this music club, if you will, um, I think I can get enough members to support it. So um, that's been that's been my goal. And it may have come from that movie subconsciously. <laughs> Funny. Well, um, we we wind up every show with the same five questions to every guest. Um, so I'm going to give you those now. Can't wait. The first one is, what's your most extravagant expense you've paid for something that has to do with music? Um, I think most extravagant that I've had to pay for music. You know, I... Um, I the piano that I bought uh, was before I had any furniture and I was out of college. There was nothing in my house, not a couch, not a chair. And I went out and bought a baby grand. I didn't have the money to do it, but I still have it, the same one. And I'm so proud I did that. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, were you waiting for like, I just need, I just need to get out of this dorm room That's and what have it the was. space? That was it. It was the, I looked, I said, do I have enough room? And I went and I, and when, and back when I bought it, they were probably eight to 10 grand didn't have it. But, uh, I said, 
no furniture, not a television. I didn't care. Yeah. So, so did you ch- was it like a loan deal? Was it just you oh yeah, pay it yeah. out monthly? No, it was a loan. Yeah. I, I, okay. I had a couple <laughs> grand to put down, and I, I remember like a car making payments. Sure. So uh, it was a Yamaha piano. Do you still have it, or have I you do. since? No, oh, I do. Great. I still have it. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have fifteen other little, you know, pianos that I've used in my band around the house or in my office, but that was the first. Okay. Um, let's find out where your heart is at. If I were to give you a million dollars to give to one charity, who who would get it? Uh, it would it would absolutely be children's charities, and I say that because I was lucky enough to sit on a couple of boards in this area, and uh, it, every one of them that touches my heart has had something to do with children, sure. abused, abused, neglected. Um, just uh, that's that's the the spot in my heart that. Um, when I think, and there's so many great charities, but for me, uh, that's what gets me. Yeah, I think anyone who yeah. has has a child realizes, yeah. uh, you know, how innocent they they are yeah. at their core. Um, on a, <laughs> I was going to say on a lighter note. Um, question three is: uh, There's you're a baseball fan. There's walk up music to the plate. What would your walk up music be to the pearly gates? Oh my gosh! I think. Uh, um, I think I'm going to have to have uh, a little earth, wind, and fire going to get me there. I'm, I'm, they're 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 my boys, and uh, you just put something on from those guys, and I'm 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 going up kindly and nicely. So uh, so more earth, wind, maybe less fire. There you go. Well, when I when I uh, had them in Charlotte, I got on stage to thank them afterwards, and Philip went, ladies and gentlemen, earth, wind, and farber. I'll never forget that. That's amazing. Um, and then on the flip side of that, uh, what song is stuck on repeat in hell? Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, wipe out. Yeah. I hate it. So, Never liked it or just, you know, after 50 years, it's like, okay, when, I got, I've got enough of that. I had so much of that. You know, when people would, you know, that was one that when we started playing, everybody wanted to do that drum solo and I would just despise it. So. There you go. Okay. And last question, you've, you've kind of answered a couple of different times, but it, it's the, what's your best music experience? Wow. That is, that is a tough one. Um, because I have been so lucky. Um, I, I, I have to say. That's like picking between children. It is, but I, I think I can answer it because of, uh, of how it felt when I had Tony Bennett the first time, uh, my, at that point, 80-year-old mom and 85-year-old dad, all three kids that were at that point ranging from 8 to 18, uh, my wife, we were all sitting in my little box. And he came out. He put his mic down. He said, I'm in this great church. I'm just going to sing Unplugged. Wow. And he looked up at us, and I saw my dad crying, my mom crying. <laughs> my kids, you know, really were emotional. And... um and I went, you know, this this just doesn't get any better. I mean, it was Tony Bennett singing to us, and it spanned the generation. So, you know, while I've really been so fortunate to have had, uh, you know, another five hours of talking to you about it, if I had to pick one, it was just the circumstances around yeah. having having that experience. That's amazing. Now, do you make a point to go to every um, like sound check or just you know get yeah, that get that's that? The best, I was that's say. the best part of it is the informal sound check where you really get to know the artist. You get to, you know, sit back and maybe talk to the star for a few minutes. But I slap myself every sound check when I, nobody in the room, 
the band sound check, and I'm sitting there, and there's whomever walking out there, and I go, "Am I living a dream?" Yeah, and, and I and I and I feel that way. Yeah, I mean that behind the scenes stuff has got to be priceless. crazy good, totally. crazy good stories. Well, Larry, I appreciate you giving My your time pleasure. to me. It's great talking to you, and uh, any anytime you got a story, I'm all ears. Thank you so much. I loved it. <laughs> Thanks. All right. Thank you, Larry Farber. Great stories. Great stories. I love how we had him just like lined up. Every time I had a question, he's like, I got a couple stories. It's always nice to have somebody with like a backlog of great stories to just keep things going. So thank you, Larry. That was a, that was a lot of fun. It was great talking to you. Um, we'll be back next week with another episode of Rockonomics. We're uh, posting on Tuesdays. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes. We're now available on Google Play. And by the time this airs, we should be up on Stitcher. Um, so go ahead and tell your music-loving friends about us. Spread the word if you could. That helps a lot. And if you want to drop us uh, an email to uh, praise or complain, uh, we're all ears. Uh, just send it to dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. That's dill as in pickle, D-I-L-L, at rockonomicspodcast.com. That is all for today. Hope to see you, hear from you, listen in next week.
All right. Thank you, Larry Farber. Great stories. Great stories. I love how we had him just like lined up. Every time I had a question, he's like, I got a couple stories. It's always nice to have somebody with like a backlog of great stories to just keep things going. So thank you, Larry. That was a, that was a lot of fun. It was great talking to you. Um, we'll be back next week with another episode of Rockonomics. We're uh, posting on Tuesdays. Uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes. We're now available on Google Play. And by the time this airs, we should be up on Stitcher. Um, so go ahead and tell your music-loving friends about us. Spread the word if you could. That helps a lot. And if you want to drop us uh, an email to uh, praise or complain, uh, we're all ears. Uh, just send it to dill at rockonomicspodcast.com. That's dill as in pickle, D-I-L-L, at rockonomicspodcast.com. That is all for today. Hope to see you, hear from you, listen in next week.